From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just finished up recording this week's show and there was loads to unpack. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including Sequoia makes its first investment in Pakistan. Um, We're joined by an expert on the market to really help us understand the the game-changing nature of this investment and how it's going to shape up the whole fintech sector in Pakistan. We also have LendUp entering liquidation. Obviously, this is a, a really nuanced story about how financial products can can be offered in the wrong way and positioned in the wrong way for customers. So diving into how that's happened and what we can learn from it. And also the pop-up shop that lets you trade in your pandemic impulse buys. Uh, an interesting one where we find out quite a lot about people's regrets and impulse purchases, particularly during the pandemic. So we go into all this and much more. So let's get into it. First, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome to episode 652 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11fs colleague, Nicole Perry, Strategy Director for Business Design and Growth. Nicole, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks, Kate. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Everyone's looking very glamorous in the office today, apart from me, because everyone was having their headshots taken, so you're looking looking very glamorous today. Just, just today? Just today? Yeah, no. Not all days? All days, all days, but especially today. Especially, yes, Absolutely. yes. For the um, headshot, yeah, we'll see how that one turns out. Um, I think it'll be the uh, same, but a little bit different, potentially a few more uh, wrinkles than the last time. But um, yeah. A uh, new headshot coming coming to you, your screen soon. I'm sure it'll be beautiful. Um, as always, uh, we're joined by some very special and equally glamorous guests. Making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Jason McCullough, publisher at Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Can you give our listeners a recap on you and Fintech Business Weekly? Absolutely. It's uh, great to be back. For listeners that don't know me, I've been an uh, operator in the consumer lending and fintech space for about 12, 13 years now and publish a newsletter, Fintech Business Weekly, which focuses on in-depth analysis of fintech, banking, and occasionally crypto. Awesome. Yeah, definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't already done so. So yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Looking forward to getting your take on the news. And it's also uh, a big welcome to the show and a Fintech Insider debut for Ariba Shahed, contributor at Deal Street Asia. Welcome, Ariba. Could you give our listeners a little introduction to yourself and to your newsbeat, please? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I work at Deal Street Asia as a contributor writing about Pakistan and occasionally Bangladesh. And in addition to that, I also work at Profit Magazine, where I cover Pakistan's macroeconomic environment and the state bank and, you know, the banking sector as a whole. So it's really exciting to be here um, to talk about fintech. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Really looking forward to, to getting your perspective on, on the news, which, uh, spoiler alert, includes some exciting stories in Pakistan. So yeah, with that, let's get into the news. And our first story comes from TechCrunch. Sequoia backs fintech D-Bank in maiden Pakistan investment. Sequoia, one of the world's most influential venture funds, has made its maiden investment in Pakistan. D-Bank said on Thursday that it has raised $17.6 million in a seed round for the largest in Pakistan. The round was led by Sequoia Capital Southeast Asia, the VC's recently unveiled $1 billion fund, with involvement from Brazil's new bank, among others. D-Bank is a fintech startup that will attempt to expand the reach of financial services in a transparent and friendly manner in Pakistan, taking on the informal credit system that tends to exploit those in need with exorbitant and unpredictable interest rates. Scores of investors, including Tiger Global, Addition and Proceus Ventures, have backed Pakistani startups in the past two years in a boost to the local ecosystem. Ariba, fantastic to have you with us to, to help us dig into this. So, I mean, firstly, how significant is this investment to Pakistan's fintech scene? So if we look at the start of investment in 2021, which was a brilliant year for Pakistan uh, following the changes in the whole co-op-co structure, uh, which made it seem like a more viable uh, investment destination. Um, Following that, uh, the year was great for startups, but specifically for fintech, because the most number of deals were in fintech. 
forward to 2022, when things are tough, uh, the global fundraising climate isn't the same as it was before. Um, the fintech sector is doing pretty uh, robust in Pakistan, especially considering the digital banking licenses are up for grabs. So this investment in the fintech scene is absolutely important, and it has it has a positive implication on the whole sector because of the State Bank of Pakistan's move towards digital banking. It's uh, its acceptance towards fintech and its acceptance towards um, you know challengers, challenging incumbents. What's the biggest thing that investors like Sequoia are offering um, when they come into Pakistan? What is, what is it that that, that kind of uh, big brand offers? Is it you know, the expertise, the finance, global awareness? What, what matters most, do you think? So if you look at Pakistan, uh, in the past, the, the, the investors that they got, uh, it, it, took some, it took some time for Pakistan to appear on the map and bring in big names. Um, we got Tiger coming in last year, Dragonair, and now Sequoia. Um, these investors bring in the expertise that is probably not available currently and these are hardcore serious investors so that that opens up pakistan to a whole different um level of operation which is important for the nascent startup ecosystem which is developing at best yeah absolutely and obviously you use the word nascent when you were describing kind of the pakistani ecosystem more broadly obviously you know, D-Bank themselves are, are pretty pretty nascent, pretty untested. Um, you know, how unusual is it for uh, for Sequoia to be investing in them when they are so untested? Um, so it is interesting because um, while Tanya, one of the co-founders, has no expertise or, or no background in fintech or banking, um, her experience at Google and her experience in the government of Pakistan, where she was heading the Digital uh, Pakistan Initiative, that makes her seem like a fairly good founder to bag because of the fact that, you know, probably good connections within the government machinery, quite decent career that brought her here. So considering all of that, D-Bank seems like a, a pretty nice bet on uh, Sequoia's part. But also when we think about this, uh, D-Bank is out for a digital banking license in Pakistan. And as for now, it seems as if they are most likely to get one. Because there have been multiple signals by the state bank, uh, regardless of whether these were intentional or unintentional, where Tanya had been called onto multiple panels to talk about fintech uh, without disclosing that she is the founder of D-Bank. So she was called to speak on multiple panels uh, organized by the state bank without disclosing that she is an applicant of the um, digital banking licenses. So Sequoia investment into D-Bank is probably because they think that D-Bank can get a digital uh, banking license and challenge the regular banks. Okay, awesome. A great, um, great local perspective, there. Nicole, what's, what was your take on, on this story? I think this is a great story and it's one that is continuing on with the narrative around emerging markets and fintech. You know, it's not necessarily all about the UK, Europe and the US anymore. Venture capitalists and funds are seeing the potential in bringing fintech services to markets where actually banking is probably not that mature or there's a number of unbanked individuals, vast um, proportions of the population. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's a great move and it's great that there's global attention on those markets also because what we can learn from those markets is so interesting because there's an opportunity to leapfrog some potential legacy tech issues in some of these markets where infrastructure is maybe not as uh, mature as it is in mature markets. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what type of propositions that they come up with. And uh, they say they want to democratise banking um, and it will be interesting to see if they really truly go to the heart of that um, or it becomes a kind of another copycat evolution of what, what we've seen before um, in other places around the globe. Yeah, no, we absolutely we use this phrase democratising finance a lot, but um, it's obviously interpreted in lots of different ways in different parts of the world. Um, Jason, what's what's your take on democratising finance, democratising banking? Is it is it harder than it sounds? Yeah, I was hoping that we were going to retire that phrase and, and leave it back in 2021, but it, it's still quite a popular phrase. I do think that the... Um, the spirit of that phrase, as far as extending financial services, uh, you know, core banking as well as you know, credit, uh, insurance, etc., to populations that historically haven't had access, if that's sort of how we're interpreting that phrase, 
one, you know, I think it's just unqualified, you know, a good goal. Uh, and two, to address your question, of course it's hard. You know, you talked a little bit about the US, UK, Western Europe, where fintech began in these markets, uh, arguably was a underserved, less well-served segment. So if you look at neobanks in the US, like Chime, Vero, Current, they skew lower income, lower credit score. Those consumers tended to have bad experiences with big establishment banks, and these neobanks came along and took advantage of that gap in the market. In some developing countries, uh, like Pakistan or uh, a market I'm more familiar with, Mexico, something like 60% of families in Mexico do not have a bank account. Now, there are structural reasons why that is the case that make it challenging to solve, but it's a big greenfield opportunity for the fintechs that are going in there and trying to solve those challenges. Absolutely. And we we quite often talk about, you know, the comparisons between different markets. And obviously, Newbank have, have been an investor in, in D-Bank. It's interesting you know, to think about, to see similarities between uh, Brazil and, and Pakistan. You know, Ariba, do you, do you look at other markets that have, have gone through fintech growth already and, and see patterns that you think Pakistan might be following? Um, so basically, when we talk about Pakistan, there's a lot of cultural aspects that uh, make people unbanked. And it's it's more it's it's not a religious aspect. It's more of a cultural aspect because Pakistan, uh, the region itself, is widely unbanked. In Pakistan it probably accounts for around eight percent of the world's unbanked population itself. So there are lots of cultural nuances that are m- missed out on. So comparing Pakistan with another country, it it leaves out those nuances. But um, with fintech coming in, the regulator. Uh, is pushing for these fintech to come in because the the commercial banks, the formal commercial bank sector hasn't really done its job. But when we compare Pakistan with other countries, and when, when I'm comparing them, I'm going to compare them probably with countries like India, Bangladesh, which are on a more similar level in terms of culture, in terms of uh, spending habits, etc. The, the resistance um, comes in because they see these institutions as exploitive. So democratizing banking is is important and the way the messaging is done will probably help. And as far as all of this is concerned, uh, the state bank, the regulator as a whole has has worked on various ways through which a normal person who does not have access to uh, documents to show the proof of income can get into the banking sector. So so there, there are multiple things that have happened but then again, the cultural nuances play a huge uh, role in it. In fact, today I was speaking to someone and the number of women that have a bank account in Pakistan, that that number, that statistic is widely overstated because it includes a number of accounts that are joint accounts. So the number of women only operated accounts are very low. And that is also because documentation in the economy is low and because the banking sector is seen with suspicion. Um, and again, cultural and historical nuances that in 1998, uh, dollar accounts was frozen. So there is a mistrust with the banking sector um, that has continued despite the regulator and despite the sector acting. So these new players coming in, such as D-Bank or other fintech players that are popping up, uh, they're shaking things up. And if I could add something, there's this new development that happened like half an hour ago. Uh, there's a fintech in Pakistan called TAG. And TAG got pilot approval. And the state bank has now asked TAG to give back everyone their money because of uh, regulatory issues. So instances like this, where fintech are taken to task when things go south, that also instills confidence. So I feel that this move, in addition to other regulatory oversights, is going to help. Um, especially when there are more players in the game. Yeah, 100%. We, we spend a lot of time, I think, criticising regulators when we think they've got it wrong, but it's equally important to celebrate them when we think they're driving really positive change and helping to innovate positively in the space, which you know, it, it sounds like they're starting to really do in, in Pakistan. Um, well, yeah, thank you so much. And that was, that was really fantastic to, to hear more about that. Um, sadly, we're going to have to move on to our, our next story. So um, this comes from Fintech Business Weekly. Lend up 
enters liquidation. So US fintech LendUp has quietly begun liquidating its remaining assets, including its neobanking subsidiary, Ahead Money. In December, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, otherwise known as the CFPB, ordered LendUp, primarily known for its earned wage access product, to cease lending operations after allegedly misleading and deceiving customers. LendUp CEO Anil Schultz signed the paperwork to move forward with the liquidation process on June the 24th, 2022. CFPB director Rohit Chopra condemned VCs for investing in the company. LendUp was backed by some of the biggest names in venture capital, Chopra said in a statement. We are shuttering the lending operations of this fintech for repeatedly lying and illegally cheating its customers. Kinley, a neobank originally built to meet the financial needs of black Americans, has acquired some of Ahead's customers. Jason, you, know, you had the exclusive on this. Great to have you on here to discuss it in more detail. You described LendUp as being the VC darling once once upon a time. How have we ended up here? Yeah, so first, a quick disclosure for your listeners. I did work at the company for a couple of years in 2014 to 2016, so a while ago. Uh, as far as your question, you know, how did it come to this? Uh, I would point to some early uh, compliance missteps. So, I mean, the case you cited from current CFPB director Rohit Chopra, you know, that was at the end of 2021. But what it was following up on was a consent order that was entered into the record in 2016. And as you can imagine, that consent order stemmed from behavior that predated 2016. So, I mean, at that point, you're talking about activity the company was engaged in, I mean, to be honest, when I was there, um, but around, you know, 2012 to 2015 that predated that order. So, I mean, when you say sort of, how did this happen? How did it get here? This just goes to show that early missteps when it comes to legal and regulatory compliance uh, can can derail an entire company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, know, you obviously had, you talked about working the company previously, but you've obviously had a, a sneak preview on, on this. How did, how did you kind of first get, get, the, to get the jump on the story? Yeah, so I've certainly been following the company, you know, since I started writing uh, in the fintech space, uh, and I sourced a, it's not technically a bankruptcy, but a filing related to its liquidation, uh, which is called an ABC or an assignment for the benefit of creditors. It's basically a a uh, less public version of a bankruptcy that liquidates the company. Uh, and there was a, a document related to that, that that is publicly available that I found. And then the story just kind of unwound from there. And obviously, you've mentioned the, the liquidation route that they chose. It does seem a little bit different. Why, why have they taken that particular route, do you think? So, I mean, to be clear, this is speculation. The The ABC process um, is not in and of itself unusual. And I should caveat, I'm not a bankruptcy attorney, although I did speak to several in the course of the story. Um, particularly in California, the law is rather favorable or accommodating to companies that want to liquidate this way. Typically, though, it is um, smaller firms. Think, you know, a mom-and-pop hardware store or a small chain of three restaurants that do this. Um, You know, the reasons why the ABC process are preferable is it allows a company to wind down quietly. So those it's not like a public bankruptcy where you can go and look up the case like you can, you know, with Celsius, for instance. Um, You know, it's, it's behind closed doors. And a second reason is it allows the liquidating company to potentially sell assets free of uh, claim, you know, debtor claims on the company. So if you had some part of the company you want to sell, you can sort of wash it through this ABC process, and it's now sort of free and clear of liability that the liquidating company had. Yeah, and that's obviously interesting because you know, Kinley has stepped in and, and acquired some of these customers. So you know, what's what's your take on that? Do you think customers are happy about it? So I reached out to Kinley, which was previously known as First Boulevard. I did not receive a response. However, uh, it is quite clear that Kinley has taken on some some assets or some responsibility for what had been LendUp's neobank ahead. Um, I actually personally had an account uh, which received no notification of the transition and was actually closed without notification. Uh, when I reached out to the customer service number that previously had been LendUp's company ahead, it was now identified as Kinley, uh, and a customer service rep at that number 
told me that, quote-unquote, uh, Ahead had rebranded to Kinley. Um, you know, there were some reports online in the app stores, both uh, the Google Play Store and iOS App Store, as well as on Twitter, from Kinley customers complaining that they couldn't access their funds. And the phone system for Kinley played a message, something to the effect of the transfer funds feature is not currently working. You know, we apologize for the inconvenience. Now, it's not clear if this disruption was tied to acquiring some of Ahead's assets or if it was unrelated. Um, I mean, I can imagine, you know, depending on how the transition unfolded, it was obviously not, you know, voluntary. So customers presumably were, were forced to move their accounts. Uh, and then you have this sort of similarly timed issue of, you know, not receiving debit cards, not being able to access funds. It, it, it definitely sounds problematic and begs the question of where was the bank partner, you know, and, and frankly, where are the regulators? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've just been <laughs> praising regulators on the previous story, and now we can jump in and, and criticize them again. So good, good bit of balance. Nicole, what, what did you think when you read this? So I think if you delve into the details of what LendUp was actually offering, you know, it said it was an earned wage product, when in reality what it was doing was, you know, through the brand identity of a LendUp ladder was quite, you know, clearly, in my opinion, encouraging people to take larger loans. And yeah, it's just, it's it feels to me like one of these fintechs that really preys on people's vulnerability um, and need for a financial service, uh, which can happen to get them into trouble or they may be uneducated when they, when they take the product out. So yeah, it feels like the product didn't feel quite right to me. And then, you know, from what we've heard um, from you, Jason, that the practices within the organisation, you know, there maybe wasn't enough commitment to um, doing things properly from the beginning. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, it's taken some time for that to uh, be uncovered. But at least now that we we know that, you know, they've been caught uh, and um, a number of customers won't be affected by, you know, this illegitimate practice again. Yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, obviously, we we see this kind of lending falling under the bracket of you know, alternative lending. And obviously, that's particularly predominant in these markets of high unbanked populations. Now, Ariba, have you seen any uh, positive innovations in this space in the markets that you cover? Can we ever um, you know, be do payday loan style lending ethically? Um, so essentially, it, it, all, it also depends on the um, the population that you're serving. So, so depending on that and how financially savvy or educated they are, that, that is important. So for instance, if I talk about the case of Pakistan or Bangladesh, the markets that I cover particularly, consumers fall prey to or loan sharks in such cases because they don't know how to read between the fine lines, when they can pay back, how they can pay back, how they can avoid getting trapped into a debt trap. Um, so that also plays an important part. But yeah, no, uh, the, the fintech, uh, essentially, in these in these developing markets, are to enable the unbanked to get access to finance that is on predatory. Um, but sometimes um, they they turn out to be predatory. And I, th- I think if I can add to that, the, for the question for me is not necessarily around alternative lending; it's about alternative access to funds. So if you think about earned wage. You are drawing down on what you have earned when you have earned it. It's not necessarily lending. It depends on the construct of the product. Actually, that's an alternative to access to those funds. Those funds are yours. You just happen to receive them, you know, a month later. So actually, as the debate around how do we disrupt people's access to money, management of that money, um, and, you know, what they do with it, how they might acquire it, etc., rather than the debate around lending. Can we can we be you know can we rip up the rule book on access to funds at all uh, you know and and yeah disrupt from that point of view? Well, yeah, and no, I, th- I think we're seeing a lot of very important innovation around you know, access to wages. Um, my understanding of this story, you know, Jason, jump in if I've I've got this wrong, but my understanding here is that a lot of the criticism of LendUp was around specifically its lending offers, so that it was around you know the the, the rates that they were charging and you know, the promises that they're making to customers about if you borrow at one stage, you'll be able to access more credit. I mean, Jason, what was your perspective? 
Yeah. So a quick clarification, you know, LendUp never positioned itself as offering an earned wage access product. They never used that language. I think that was just a, a mischaracterization in some of the secondary reports. You know, it, it described itself as an alternative to payday loans. And you're correct that where it got into trouble with was, I mean, a number of areas, but most notably some of the marketing characterizations around that product, right? So they were saying things like, you can get access to more money at better rates over time. Now, in the US, the model they were using, you're licensed in every individual state, uh, and the product can actually end up looking really quite different state by state. And so to go out with a marketing message and say, you know, more uh, access to more money at lower rates over time might be true in California, but it might not be true in Illinois or Texas or somewhere else. And so that's one area where, you know, they were kind of dinged for making marketing claims that were, you know, not true. Uh, there were all sorts of other problems around, you know, saying they were reporting data to credit bureaus when they weren't. Uh, you know, charging interest rates that were higher than what they disclosed in the TILA box, which is like the uh, regulatory disclosure requirement. So there were a lot of issues. But the sort of big headline story was, and this is what you saw in the Rohit Chopra quote, was, you know, that the company, quote unquote, lied to consumers. And that, that sort of was the area I think people reacted the most strongly to. I mean, one, you know, that the nature of the payday product tends to be very, very divisive, Anywhere, but particularly in the U.S., where if you're doing lending above 36% APR and a typical payday loan is like 450%, you know, it's just a lightning rod for criticism, um, you know, justifiably. Uh, and then two, when you sort of tack on some of these, you know, missteps from a compliance legal regulatory standpoint, you know, it, it was very problematic. Yeah, definitely sounds like there are lots of lessons to be learned. And we, obviously, we want to continue to see positive innovation in this space. But yeah, hopefully we can we can use this as a as a case study in, in how not to how not to do things moving forward as well. Um, we're going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. So JP Morgan is building a giant travel agency. JP Morgan Chase is putting together its own full-service travel business, according to the Wall Street Journal. The bank, one of the flagship US financial institutions, has bought a booking system, a restaurant review company, and a luxury travel agent. It has also built its own airport lounges, hired thousands of travel agents, and will launch a new website too. JP Morgan executives think the bank might be able to capture $15 billion in bookings in 2025, which would be five times what it handled before these purchases. That would make it the third biggest travel agent in the US based on 2021 volumes, per stats from Travel Weekly. JP Morgan's goal is to turn the travel customers into lifelong Chase fans who will spend more with the bank. Nicole, why, why is JP Morgan Chase moving to travel? So I love this story because I think it really embodies a lot of what we talk about here at 11FS um, from the move from analog kind of banking dumb products, as David Breer likes to say, um, into intelligent services because, yeah, it's really interesting that they're, you know, branching out. They might be diversifying the lifelong chase fan thing. But actually, the most interesting thing for me about this move from JP Morgan is their ability to embed financial products within that ecosystem. So you can imagine, um, you know, if you're going to the travel agent, what's your point of need at that point? You, know, you might need to, you know, fund the holiday. You might not have the funds to do it at that point. Okay, maybe time for a lending product. Um, you know, payments when it comes to um, their restaurant um, endeavours and loyalty and, oh, actually, you know, have you, can do you, how do you manage your funds? Do, have you thought about a JPM Chase current account? So you can see how, well, for me, what I can see is that they're sort of building that closed loop ecosystem where it's JP Morgan owned, 
JP Morgan managed with JP Morgan products embedded into the journey. And I think it's the perfect example. I think it's a very clever move from JP Morgan about how they are positioning themselves for the future and a genuinely intelligent servicing way of banking. Fair enough. Jason, do you share Nicole's excitement? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense. If you think about, you know, who are they targeting with this? It's Amex, right? American Express, which has long had one, the sort of like upscale luxury branding positioning, and two, uh, has focused on the corporate segment. So if I think of like, okay, what is uh, J.P. Morgan Chase doing here? You know, they already have a very strong beachhead in the form of their uh, much beloved Chase Sapphire Reserve card. I haven't lived in the United States in four years, and I still have that credit card for some reason. Uh, and they're sort of continuing to build out the ecosystem around it, right? So you have loyalty points, you earn those by spending on the card, redeem them through, you know, Chase's travel services, you know, use the phrase like closed loop integrated, yes. Uh, and then, you know, airport lounges, like that's a clear play for the Amex Centurion customer. Uh, and so, you know, there continues to be this battle to move to capture that, you know, top of the market consumer, the, I guess, the kids who are going from, you know, Manhattan to Mykonos or whatever, not not anything that I ever did, um, and, and you know, capture them and make uh, them a primary customer of the bank. Um, and yeah, I mean, if that's the strategy and it appears to be like it's, it's, uh, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, I've just come back from a trip to Italy where I was surrounded by quite affluent-sounding U.S. teenagers traveling seemingly unaccompanied. So I think uh, yeah, probably quite a a high amount of of spend to go after there. If that's yeah, again, not not a representative sample. Um, Ariba, have you seen anything like this with this kind of blending of of finance and travel in in, in parts of the world that you cover? So in fact, the world that I cover, um, any bank account that has a platinum card or whatever, they're they're really helpful when you're traveling and it's really sought after despite the fact that the card pension is like less than 1% of the population in most of the countries. Um, but what JP is doing here is actually brilliant because they're creating a whole ecosystem for this for themselves and, you know, keeping in mind how the dollar has been strengthening um, because of the Fed rate hikes, how international travel is probably cheaper for people in the US, um, especially when they're, they're talking about currencies where now you're almost at par with the euro. That's really interesting. And the timing couldn't be better, I guess, um, despite the fact that the world is probably heading towards a recession. Um, this is probably JP's way of creating more customers for itself through different branches. So I don't know, like when we travel, uh, regardless of whether you have something, you have a debit or credit card with you. So the closest thing that you have to back home is your bank. Removing the third person or removing the middleman is what JP is doing here. And absolutely, it's a, it's a really great idea. Um, and this is rethinking banking, especially in a time where, you know, new age products are popping up. Legacy banks need to stay competitive and they have the balance sheets that can enable them to expand the way they are. Yeah, I can I can definitely see the thinking behind it. So the one thing that I was disappointed about when I read this was I didn't see, maybe I've missed it, I didn't see any mention of insurance. And for me, like travel and insurance are the two things which like are so often so painful and should be together and still remain separate. So you know, to me, that would be, uh, maybe it's part of their, their longer term planning, but to me, that would be a, a really amazing synthesis if you could have you know, your finances and your insurance in one place. I don't know, what do you think, Nicole? Yeah, maybe we should all take a bet on what banking product they'll introduce into this uh, new world that they're creating first. And uh, yeah, insurance would certainly be a sensible one, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one potential uh, challenge is, you know, does launching a travel agency square with ESG? You know, obviously we're chatting a lot about ESG at the moment. You know, JP Morgan said in 2021 that they hope to reduce the carbon intensity of their financing portfolios by $1 trillion, apparently, by 2030. But yeah, the traveller sector accounts for 8%, apparently, of all global carbon emissions. So can you be serious about ESG and launch a travel agency, Jason? Uh, I tend to take a somewhat sceptical view of you know companies, big banks, embracing ESG, you know, it, it feels a, a bit like greenwashing, and I don't want to pick specifically on JPMC. I mean, I think sort of broadly speaking, uh, for a variety of reasons, 
um, financial services companies have sort of found themselves embracing this uh, ESG movement. So, I mean, to to your specific question, you know, can you be serious about ESG and launch a travel agency? Uh, I mean, I suppose there are ways you could try to thread that needle, you know, doing things like offering carbon offset credits when you buy your flight. So I'm, I'm shopping, I'm booking my flight, I'm booking my hotel. Oh, can I make my holiday uh, carbon neutral by paying an extra, you know, X dollars? I, I think there are, if you were serious, both from a practical standpoint, as well as from a sort of optical standpoint, I think there are ways you could try to thread the needle to do both of these things. Okay, let's watch. Let's watch this space. I mean, the other thing that's interesting to this, I suppose, is we've just had the announcement today in the UK from the Bank of England about interest rates going up, you know, a big warning about you know, the almost inevitability of recession in the UK. But yet Jamie Dimon has been quite blasé almost about the impact of recession in the States. You know, he's sort of claimed apparently that he thinks you know, US consumers are in, in great shape. Um, you know, Jason, I know you're not in the States, but you're probably closer to it than the rest of us. Do you agree with his assessment? I mean, I think in a in a macro sense, yeah, that's true. If you're looking at household balance sheet, if you're looking at corporate balance sheet, it is true that businesses and consumers, you know, if we are in recession or going into recession, are much better positioned, you know, certainly than they were in 2008. That said, you know, uh, averages tend to lie, right? That's not going to be true for every consumer, and you've already seen this in the data where. Uh, the lower income consumers, lower income households have already burned through all that stimulus money, right? You saw checking account balances swell over the course of 2020, 2021, you know, with stimulus checks and other forms expanded unemployment, et cetera. And those were very effective at reducing poverty and cushioning the blow from the pandemic and, and sort of the chaos that that caused. All that money uh, at the lower sort of bottom quintile of income earners, that money is gone. And so if we are entering a recession, those are the people who are going to feel it first. Now, are they the ones using a, you know, a platinum credit card to book a fancy vacation? Probably not. But I mean, if you look at the headlines for the past week, you're already starting to see late payments tick up on credit cards, on auto loans in that lowest earning segment and in the subprime segments. Uh, and you know, you're seeing uh, a huge increase in Americans who are shopping for food at discount stores and dollar stores. And that says to me, you know, their household budget is under pressure. They're finding ways to make ends meet now. But if you see the recession pick up and particularly hit uh, jobs, see unemployment rise, you know, those consumers are going to have to make a cut somewhere and, you know, choose a bill to stop paying, right? So in a macro sense, is Diamond right? Sure. Uh, but if you start to look at segment by segment, how is this going to play out? There are already plenty of, of households that are feeling the pain uh, from, you know, particularly from inflation and rising prices. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, historically, I think we would have said almost without hesitation that travel um, was like a luxury that people would cut straight away. But I think it's going to be so interesting to see the four, you know, what impact COVID has on this. Like, you know, just anecdotally, you hear so many people just talking about how desperate they are to travel, to kind of reconnect. Um, so, yeah, I think a, a really interesting juxtaposition of the, the fallout of COVID and you know, these economic downturns. So, yeah, definitely one to one to watch. Um, moving on to our next story. So I had a critique chat about travel agencies all day, but sadly, sadly, too much news. So our next story comes from Betakit, and that is that Portage Ventures rolls out new late-stage fintech fund. So fundraising has started for one of the largest dedicated fintech funds ever raised, with Canada's Portage Ventures aiming to raise between $750 million and $1 billion. Portage Ventures, the VC arm of PowerCore investment firm Sagard, 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 let's go for it, is looking to provide flexible financing to late stage firms. The VC firm has previously raised $616 million USD to date and is already one of the largest early stage fintech focused venture funds in the world. Several reports have indicated that this fund will focus on fintechs with a valuation of more than $500 million and with revenues between $100 million and $200 million that are approaching profitability. Portage will invest in securities that combine debt and equity features, but will not require startups to lock in valuations as with traditional equity fundraising. To find out what this fund means for Canada's fintech scene, we reached out to Betakit's editor, Douglas Soltis. 
Hello, FinTech Insider friends. It's Douglas Saltis, Editor-in-Chief of Betacid here. So big news in the Canadian FinTech space with the announcement of Portage's late-stage FinTech fund. Important things to note. Portage is part of the Sagard Power Corp family of companies, which has invested in most, if not all, notable Canadian fintechs. We're talking ClearCo, Coho, Borwell, Wellsimple, Wave, etc. They really know the market. It's also super timely, as the bottom just recently fell out of Canadian fintech funding in Q2, dropping 70% year over year from $1 billion to $300 million, with deals also decreasing 36% quarter over quarter. So capital from the people who know fintech should help things out. But it's also about the structure of the fund. Portage co-founder and CEO Adam Fleski told Betica that the PCS fund will invest in securities that combine debt and equity features and do not require startups to lock in valuations as with traditional equity fundraising. As part of the process, he said that Portage will need to lock in a current valuation, but can price at a later point in time, at a future event, or now at a higher valuation, depending on the downside protections. It's worth noting that Power and Sagard have had to mark down a lot of their portfolio valuations recently, including companies like Wellsimple. So Portage sees an opportunity to provide financing to growth stage fintech companies in need of capital, but hesitant to accept a reduced valuation amid the market downturn. Translation, they're going deal hunting. Why is this so important? As one of the heads of the innovation banking teams at Canada's big five banks told me recently, in a downturn, it is a great time to have a checkbook. I mean, main main insight for me is that people still have checkbooks. I didn't realize didn't realize that was a thing. But obviously, yeah, great time to have a have a checkbook. You know, are we even saying like, is it still surprising to see one of the biggest fintech funds in Canada being this active when when economic uncertainty is so great? Well, I mean, you buy when things are cheap, right? Or you, sh- you should be. Um, and I think that, you know, despite the kind of uh, doom and gloom around the uh, funding falling out the bottom of the market, you know, that's not just a Canadian-specific thing. We've seen that happen across the globe. Um, so, yeah, I feel like, um, you know, people didn't really know what they're doing, don't get scared off by that sort of global news. Um, and, yeah, you know, with the kind of parameters that they've set, it seems like they're... Um, investing in companies that are pretty established, you know, they have existing revenue streams that are quite chunky, um, you know, appropriate valuations. So, yeah, it feels like they're they're ready to back people that are already seeing some success in that market. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, it sounds like from what they've how they've described it themselves, you know, they've described their their funding model in as being quite unique. You know, Jason. Do you see it as being unique? Is it, is, it, is it really differentiated in the market? I mean, I can't say I've heard of an instrument structured quite like that. I mean, I should caveat, you know, I'm not an investment banker uh, or, uh, or a VC. Um, but as far as, you know, listening to, to the description that he just gave, particularly at, at a later stage, at a growth stage, you can see why that would have appeal in current market conditions, right? I mean, rightly or wrongly, uh, doing a down round, the dreaded down round, um, is really painful, right? I mean, look at the headlines that Klarna got for weeks and weeks in the Wall Street Journal sort of covering the negotiations tied to its financing. And, you know, having that kind of valuation cut on the public markets, it, it hurts as well, but it doesn't tend to generate quite the intense coverage as you know going to raise uh, a private round and see your valuation drop you know 60 70 80 percent so if they've structured a you know debt and equity product that allows you know allows them to basically avoid announcing a valuation you can see why that would hold appeal in the current market yeah absolutely and obviously you know, the darling of Canadian fintech is is Shopify and, and they've been hugely impacted by that you know I think their valuation has gone down by 75% this year after kind of reaching I think over 200 billion in market value um during the pandemic so huge companies being hugely impacted but I mean one thing that we have seen being discussed you know Ariba is that you know some of these emerging markets maybe are not seeing the same impact on on fundraising or the VCs are treating emerging markets differently you know what what's your take on that um, so if you talk about our, um, if you talk about emerging markets, most of them are again new to the startup scene. So if I if I talk about Pakistan specifically, um, we haven't seen anything beyond Series C at this point. So 
that shows you how new the sector is. Um, and, and because of this, uh, you know, it's easier to raise at younger rounds, like first few rounds than it is like later on. So there's that. And then in addition to everything that we've talked about, the very fact that the population is large, there are lots of, there's, there's a huge potential, a 220 million population that's largely unbanked, largely underserved. Things like this do make sense. So emerging markets are usually have the same features of a large population, largely unbanked, mostly young. Um, so it does make sense. But with funding, uh, they're, they're still getting funding uh, because, again, they're pretty new to scene. They're pretty new to the whole uh, thing. And uh, with inflation going the way it is and currencies depreciating, any funding in U.S. dollars turns out to be significant funding in their local currency. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the amounts of the amounts of money they're talking about are significant amounts of US dollars. I think if they reach that one billion target, you know, obviously it's huge. Nicole, you've got one billion dollars to spend in fintech. Where are you where are you sending it? Now is this in geography or segment? Well, you can pick. Okay, okay. So I think geography, I think the African fintech scene is super exciting at the moment. I'm quite addicted to reading about it on Twitter actually. Shout out to Guerra for yeah, helping the algo push through. I always see tweets from her. Um, and yeah, so I think that's super exciting. And then uh, when it comes to kind of segment, I, was, I, I must profess I'm not a payments expert, but it always interests me. And I am very excited to see what use cases continue to come out of payments investment. So I think that would be my two. Okay. Um, obviously with the caveat that this is not, you know, this is not investment advice, but yeah, Jason, Jason, where's your money going if, if you're in charge? Yeah, I mean, I think geography, uh, I concur as far as emerging markets, you know, to the discussion earlier in the show, you know, US, Western Europe, these are countries that have well-developed banking financial services ecosystems with, for the most part, well-served customers. I think there's a lot more interesting greenfield opportunities, you know, in places like India and Pakistan and Africa and Latin America. Product-wise, you know, you've seen a pivot away from consumer fintech, so the neobanks and BNPL. And that's because they, you know, frankly, they're financial services companies and their valuation multiples have begun to reflect that. Uh, you know, I think the the move now, and I generally agree with this, is more towards, you know, quote unquote, uh, infrastructure or picks and shovels companies. So the plumbing that sits underneath, you know, things like open banking, you know, Plaid, th- those kind of companies, as well as payment infrastructure, um, you know, identity verification, KYC, AML, these sort of, you know, maybe more boring bits that make the financial ecosystem work. And they tend to look more like software companies, scale like software companies, and hopefully uh, for them, have valuation multiples that look like software companies. Absolutely. And Arib, I'm guessing that you're going to put your money in in Pakistan or at least in that region. But I mean, which particular part of the fintech space would you love to be able to accelerate in particular? So the MENAP region specifically, yeah, you're right. I would, I would definitely park my money here because the potential is large. Um, but I would go into receivable factoring. So a lot of fintech in Pakistan is, is, and in the region are doing receivable factoring is because uh, businesses, the SMEs, uh, they're largely unbanked and they do not have access to working capital the way businesses do. And um, with the lack of cards, with the lack of online payment means, and with a mistrust towards online payments, cash and delivery is largely uh, popular in this region. And when cash delivery is popular, it's, it's really expensive to execute. Um, and it's really difficult for small businesses to grow. Uh, keeping that in mind, receivable factoring works really well. Um, and it's, it's taken up with popularity. So that is where my money, which I don't have, is going. <laughs> well, you know, with that pitch, maybe Portage are going to be knocking on your door and, and, and signing you up. You never know. <laughs> um, if you want to find out more about Canada's fintech scene in particular, um, we've got a great episode of Fintech Insider Insights. You can check out episode 611. We've got guests from Solero, National Bank of Canada, Brim Financial and Coho. So go check that out. Um, sadly, uh, we don't have time to cover all the stories we'd like to in a huge amount of detail. So for this part of the show, we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, but still deserve a shout out. Nicole, do you want to get us started? 
Sure. So what I'm going to cover is um, the move from Virgin Money, where they have launched uh, buy now, pay later products. Despite criticism, I have to say I may be potentially biased in my opinion of this one, as I was an ex-Virgin Money colleague and I did really like it um, and actually did work on the conception of this product at one point. But I will, I will give an objective view. Um, so, uh, in essence, Virgin Money is set to launch by now, later uh, credit card product this year. Um, it's introducing Virgin Money Slice with a Y, uh, where users are able to um, spread any payment over £30 across three, six, nine, or 12 month repayment plans. Paying back in three or six months will be fee-free, but then fees will be charged for payments over longer periods. Virgin Money said the product will be fully regulated and it will carry out credit and affordability checks before any spending starts. There have been widespread concerns uh, over how easy it is for people to build up large amounts of debt with buy now, pay later, which they can always easily uh, repay. Um, so I think that criticism covers the whole of the buy now, pay later sector in general, to be honest, not really just Virgin Money. Um, but I like this move from Virgin Money, non-biased. Um, yeah, I like this move from, from Virgin Money. I think it makes sense for customers. It feels fair to me. You know, there's different choices available for the customer. I feel like they are a fair bank. Um, you know, they have efforts to combat the poverty premium. They've tried to make some moves with ESG. So it feels like a product that works for Virgin Money, but also could potentially work um, for its customers. I particularly like the brand name. Um, and they've also got quite an interesting marketing campaign using a waiting list to build hype. Um, which I read a, a really interesting blog on the other day from Tom Blomfield's Monzo about how they use that. And um, that's on Tumblr, by the way, if you ever want to read it. But yeah, in general, it feels like a good move to me. It's a bit like, potentially a little bit too late, you know, by now, police, are we moving on? Are people still interested? I don't know. Um, but it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, how popular it is and, and whether it lands with their customer base. I think it's always, I'm always just really interested to see the actual execution of the, the yes. customer experience. Like how easy are they making for people to see how much they owe? How yeah. easy is it to pay back early? All of that stuff I think Absolutely. is key. So I will definitely be having a little cheeky stalk of it once it's available on Pulse. Um, got another story here from TechCrunch. So US-based fintech Umba buys majority stake in Kenya's Daraja Microfinance Bank. So Umba, a US-based digital bank with a focus on emerging markets, has acquired a majority share of Daraja, a Kenyan deposit-taking microfinance bank for an undisclosed amount. Kenya's monetary authority, the Central Bank of Kenya, CBK, said Umba had taken up two-thirds of shareholding, an acquisition that is expected to fast-track Daraja's digitization. This comes after Umba announced raising $15 million in a pre-Series A round in April this year, when it also made public its plans to expand beyond Nigeria to Kenya, Ghana and Egypt. The fintech, which was founded by Tin and Kennedy and Barry Amani, offers a wide range of financial products, including free accounts, interbank transfers, peer-to-peer transfers, bill payments and loans at a monthly interest rate of 10%. So this is a really interesting one. Full disclosure, I hadn't actually come across Umba before. I've not worked there. <laughs> I feel like it's quite unique in our stories this week, but I've not worked there. Um, but it's an interesting dynamic. You know, Irish founders based out of the US, building an African neobank. Um, they've got interesting investors, including Monzo co-founder Tom Blomfield, apparently. Um, and their CEO has said that they're trying to follow the same model as Newbank, which is you know, always a good thing to claim when you're looking for investment, um, by kind of starting off with that focus on making it easier for customers to access credit and then looking to upsell them to a broader spectrum of multiple banking products in the longer term. And they're obviously, obviously looking to roll out across multiple high-growth potential markets. So, yeah, definitely one to watch. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. This is from Time Out Melbourne. Um, get up to $500 for your bad pandemic impulse buys at this pop-up store. So Australian banking app Up are opening a pop-up store in Melbourne, giving consumers a chance to swap regretful impulse buys for up to $500 cash. I assume that's Australian dollars. Melburnians can bring their impulse buys to the Maybuy Exchange, an experiential store hosted by UpBank between August the 3rd and August the 7th. So shoppers can trade their item for Up merchandise or try their luck with a spin on the anti-impulse machine. Sounds quite intense. And the machine will randomly generate a value between $10 and $500, and the amount will be deposited into the customer's bank account. The shop is part of the publicity campaign for the bank's new savings product, and all of the clothing items will later be donated to a charity partner. 
So we asked on the FinTech Insider social channels, what's an impulse purchase that's given you buyer's remorse? And we've got a wide variety of answers, but some of the best included three pairs of shoes in a different colour from Sajida, a dress that I had to be cut out of when I got home from Laura. that sounds very painful, 10 poppadoms uh, from Ali. I, I, I wouldn't regret that. 10 poppadoms is not a bad life choice. I mean, they're quite light, so that's fine. A box set of every episode of Columbo from Matt. I've not actually watched Columbo, so I can't pass a comment on that one. Mm, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> what is it? I think it's like an old detective show, oh. I think. Um, a cameo from Nigel Farage, Ali Patterson, not passing comment on that. This is not meant to be a political show. A t-shirt that reads, Jesus is my boyfriend, Arena. I hope you're okay. Uh, and a 10 grand tie that I never wore save one occasion. In my defence, I was in my early 20s from Mandar Kagade. I'm, wow. I'm really I'm really not sure even being in your early 20s excuses that 10, 10 uh, grand on a tie is just yeah, absurd. Yeah, I, I definitely did not have 10 grand in my <laughs> 20s and certainly would not have spent it on a tie. But I mean, maybe it was on buy now, pay later, who knows? Yeah, perhaps. Virgin Money Slays. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> Stop plugging <Sorry>. it. <laughs> okay, um, confession time. Uh Ariba, what is your most regretted impulse purchase? What are you taking to the store? Yeah, so it's it's really funny because I relate to Sajida and I got like three pairs of the same shoes in different colors. I also got a dress that I had to be cut out of. And I also, I didn't buy, it wasn't 10 grand in pounds, but I spent like more than 10 grand on clothes that I would only wear once. So I, I'm i the worst person to ask this question because I can go on and on. Like, how much time do you have? Well, I mean, I'd have to check with the production team, but maybe we, <laughs> we might have to cut you off before long. And also, we don't want to put all of your bad choices out into, into the world. <laughs> there are lots. <laughs> there are lots. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm the type of person that gets influenced by advertisement. So I'm, I'm the worst person to talk to. <laughs> Jason, um, what, what, what are your impulse purchases? Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge shopper, so I'm going to say every bag of Doritos I bought during the first year of the pandemic, when you know we thought it was going to be a short amount of time, and there's like no rules, and and it's like yes, I'm going to order Domino's pizza and like Doritos and like beer, and then I was like, oh no, this is going to last for a while. So unless I want to be impulse buying new clothes, I need to take it take it down a notch. <laughs> I mean, this is we're. We're having a giggle about it. You know, is this good PR for Up? You know, they've launched a new savings product. What do you think, Nicole, of their strategy? Yeah, I think it's quite fun. I don't really know if there's much more depth to it than that, to be honest. Uh, I think it's fun. People will go along. I suppose there's a deeper message in there about, you know, think before you buy and saving is more important than impulse purchases and whatnot. But yeah, I think it's fun. I like it. It's quite novel. And yeah, it takes us back to the times of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, it's a bit of a, a fun PR campaign, but I think actually the product that they're launching is really interesting and exciting. I think sort of talking about it more is like save now, pay later. And it's maybe not the only people that are innovating this space. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, I think we've got understandably really excited about buy now, pay later. But I still think there's a huge amount of innovation that we can do in the savings space. Like people just tend to default and see savings as like, just put your money in an account. But fundamentally, like when you think about it from the customer perspective, like actually like those savings are to achieve things and to accomplish things. And I think actually what they've designed is a really great um, you know, way of helping customers to plan for things that they really want. Um, and, and that's that's exciting. Um, I realise I've probably been a bit unfair. I've not confessed my impulse purchase. I'm trying to think. I mean, I think my most of my regretful impulse purchases are, you know, late night snacks on the way home <laughs> from, from from work. Yeah. Work days that seem like a good idea at the time and then and then come yeah, back those, to haunt me. Those rack up pretty quickly on the old day uh, transaction list, don't they? You guys are making me feel guilty with all your normal purchases. <laughs> <laughs> but I totally agree. I mean three pairs of shoes in this in different colours, if it's a good pair of shoes that fit your feet, I think it's yeah, a really I'm, good I'm idea. I'm on board with that approach and simplicity. Yeah, so I think you're beating up you're beating yourself up too yeah. much a really, And you I'm know not. that they work. Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you, so, if you're in Melbourne and you've got things that you regret, then yeah, feel free to feel free to check it out. So sadly, uh, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Nicole? 
You can find me at nicole.perry at 11fs.com or on LinkedIn with Nicole Perry. Ariba? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's Ariba Shahid, A-R-I-B-A, S-H-A-H-I-D, Ariba Shahid, and the same on LinkedIn. And sometimes on Instagram, but that's just too much for me. I like I like the uncertainty around it. It's kind of creating a sort of a sort of element of peril, which is, which is cool. <laughs> uh, Jason, where can people find you either consistently or sporadically? Yeah, you can subscribe to the newsletter at fintechbusinessweekly.com and you can find me intermittently on Twitter uh, and it's uh, at Makula J-A. So that's M-I-K-U-L-A-J-A. Brilliant. Um, and as for me, you can find me at K8Moody on Twitter or on LinkedIn, Kate Moody most of the time to be honest uh, so yeah thank you very much for listening you can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11 thank you very much goodbye goodbye